Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Michael Keynes, an assistant editor on the TLS, is here with me. Hi, Michael. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. I've come to rest after 12 days, I think, of literary festivaling, which has taken me to Cheltenham, to Manchester, back to Cheltenham and back to Manchester. And finally, home to Ireland overnight. I've had some really, really nice chats, including a lovely event last night with Nick Hornby, whose book is about the twin geniuses of Prince and Dickens. Oh my goodness, what a great pairing. It was so interesting and so fun, and I always like talking to Nick, but it was kind of revelatory and fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I thoroughly recommend the book. What have you been up to? Alex, you've completely outdone me. I did go to the Cheltenham Literature Festival for the first weekend. I saw, How did I not see you then? Well, I was going to say we didn't bump. I only went to two events and then I went to the, I hid in the Rare Bookshop and it was great. The Rare Bookshop just opposite the Town Hall. It's like a fantastic cavern of beautiful books. And the events I went to, one was okay. The other one was very meh. So I won't name any names, but, you know, I think I could have done better myself. I could have got more involved like you. I was sort of putting my interview hat on, but I will say I had a very nice first weekend because I was with Stanley Tucci, but I oh. ended it. And so this is just probably, we don't talk about Strictly Come Dancing very much on the TLS podcast, but I interviewed one of the Strictly Come Dancing judges, Motsi Mabusi, oh, and right. she taught me to do some dance steps on stage. Oh, wow. At, if you please, 10.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Oh my, well, that's brave in itself. Fantastic. Well, it's been a really huge week in the world of literature with a very high profile prize. You may be aware of it. And we're going to talk a bit more about that later. Michael, what else have we got coming up this week? Coming up on this week's show, it takes something fairly sensational for a dispute about medieval literature to make the newspapers. But that's just what's happened in the past week, thanks to the unveiling of new evidence in a long disputed case involving Geoffrey Chaucer and what seems to have been an accusation of rape. Mary C. Flannery will be joining us to explain what this new evidence about the author of the Canterbury Tales reveals about both his times and our own. But first, as previously discussed, we are going to be talking about the booker. And as I was 
bombing across North Wales. I mean, within the speed limit, obviously. Listening to the Booker Prize winner being announced on BBC Radio 4's front row by Samira Ahmed, who always does just such a brilliant job at these things. Toby, of course, was there. And Michael, you were also there in a sort of capacity. Yeah, I was virtually there. You were virtually there, Toby. Yeah. Literally there. Yes, hello, yes, I was physically there. I have been to sort of booker things in the past, and I've, as we have, you know, been to quite a lot of these ceremonies, and it seems quite a long way to come from the sort of rubber chicken years. Is that fair? Do you, will you go and there'd be some chat, and then there'd be a chicken breast, an awful lot of speeches? And then that would be that. But, I mean, we didn't have the equivalent, for example, of Dua Lipa doing the event. And it wasn't at somewhere as funky, I suppose, as the Roundhouse. Sorry, as funky marks me out as an old person, doesn't it? Anyway. And now, Bucks Fizz present the Booker Prize. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Michael. Not quite. Oh, yes, actually that old. Toby, paint a picture of words of what it was like last night. Previous years, pre-pandemic, it was always the London Guildhall, wasn't it? Which is, you know, incredibly grand and beautiful. And, there, you know, there's sort of a rarefied atmosphere. And it's, it's very posh, very glam. But the Roundhouse is, except for a little bit funkier, there are gigs there. I was at a music gig there rather recently. And I guess it did lend itself to a slightly more raucous atmosphere. And it had it all. As you say, it had Dua Lipa, who gave a little speech about books and what they mean to her. It had Camilla, Queen Consort, presenting the prize, as she has often done in the past. There was chicken. It was pretty nice. <laughs> I wasn't too rubbery. I'm very, very grateful for it. Yes, it's not a good look, is it, to be complaining about the no, free dinner about one free gets food. at a swanky do? I mean, it really isn't. Exactly. But there was there was a, a crackling atmosphere. And actually, Samira Ahmed, who you mentioned, she did a very good job of getting everyone to start cheering very loudly just before we went live on Front Row. There was a singing of Happy Birthday to Alan Garner. Yeah, so two of the six um, shortlistees weren't able to attend. Elizabeth Strout was unwell and Alan Garner is 88. And I think he, you know, it was quite a lot for him to get down. So we had this wonderful spectre of him sitting completely impassive by a flickering fire. The only reason we knew that it wasn't a photograph was that the fire was flickering, but he was totally unmoved, it was brilliant. And then everyone sang happy birthday and he very slowly cracked a smile and waved. And that was a really lovely moment. <laughs> <laughs> For those of us who were listening on the radio, we didn't see the wave. We just heard him saying, thank you very much. Very quietly and very kind of sweetly, but he clearly wasn't entirely going to join in with the sort of, you know, the sort of antics, as it were. Maybe enduring it would be unfair. But yeah, there was a sense that he was just going to let everyone else get on with it. <laughs> as these affairs often are. No one knew who was going to win. You know, everyone had their bets on this person or that person, Percy Leverett, Sir Elizabeth Strout, Claire Keegan, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure how many people had tipped she and uh, Karen Tanaka to win. And there was a great amount of delight when he did. And he gave a fantastic press conference afterwards. It was very charming, very funny. It seemed very relaxed, given the sort of the glare of the whole occasion. It's quite a thing winning the Booker. I, I talked to Damon Galga after he won it last year. And you don't just win and win a lovely amount of money and then get your books sold in vast quantities, all of which is wonderful. You sort of have to go on a global tour for a year, which is yes, very exciting. Yes, he's still on it. I mean, he was there last night, wasn't he? And I, I interviewed him last week in... Manchester. I'd seen him a couple of days before that in Cheltenham uh, because it is, as we know, sort of autumn literary festival season. 
And he, I don't think he's been home for quite a long time, the poor fella. It's a wonderful thing and a great, Absolutely. great privilege. But if you are the sort of person who spends their life, you know, at home writing books, it's, it can actually be quite a lot to deal with, this sort of roller coaster of being rolled out at festival after festival to talk about yourself and your books. And it's exhausting as well as exciting. And you're not writing while it's happening. And you're not you're writing, not writing exactly. the next book. I mean, this is all a terrible advertisement for the booker because it seems like, I think antics is, is the word for it, really. It begins with this kind of circus and then you trap a writer and mean they can't get back to their desk, which if they're a real writer, that's what they really want to do is be writing. It's a luxurious trap. Yes, you get all this money and attention and acclaim, but then you're kind of theirs and they need you more than you need them, actually, in the end of the day. You are a wonderful curmudgeon about the book and all prizes, and I respect that. Are you always curmudgeonly, Michael? One, I'm always curmudgeonly, yes. But no, I mean, my point about the booker really is they didn't offer me any rubber chicken, so I'm not on the take from them. But I do think that there is something about this kind of prize, this particular kind of prize, where it is created by publishers to artificially boost a bestseller that is very circus-like. And so, in a way, this this year's ceremony... It's quite emblematic of that. It's a kind of repositioning, a long overdue repositioning for the booker, where it's kind of going, this is a marketable piece of serious literature. Or the booksellers prefer the term literary fiction, which doesn't really mean anything. I think if you're actually a critic or an actual reader, what is literary fiction? It's meaningless. Or a writer, indeed. Or a writer, indeed. What the hell is that? I don't think, indeed, that this year's winner would know what that really meant. In fact, he referred to his novel as a fantasy novel. Right, yeah. Um, and, yeah. Know, said he said he wants to find it, you know, wants it to stay on the fantasy shelves and not to be found on the, the realism ones. Listening to Sheehan Karinatatlaka, his speech, it had to be truncated on the radio at least by Samira Ahmed because he could clearly have spoken for an hour. And it was such a brilliant speech. He was so obviously, you know, delighted to have won, but so impassioned about why he had written the book and what it meant and what he wanted it to show. How did it feel in the room, Toby? Electric. It was really exciting. And yes, there was that bit when Samira had to sort of shut him down because they were, they were running out of time and he sort of didn't let her. And <laughs> no disrespect to Samira Rama, but everyone was rooting for him just to carry on saying what he was saying because he, he was damn well going to get it out. And he was really well received. And as I said at the press conference as well, he was fantastic. He fielded some awkward questions, some clever questions, and he did the whole thing with humour and grace. When I say I was virtually there, I was only virtually there really for that press conference. He fielded really well all kinds of crude questions like, how are you going to spend your winnings? Yes, someone said, oh, I understand that your publisher didn't have enough money to actually get you over here. So I believe the Booker Foundation paid you. Are you going to pay for your return ticket? Yeah, he dealt with that with amazing grace, really. (laughs) Just, wow. This man's just won the Booker Prize. Leave him alone. Not really any questions about the book either. I think I've sort of seen the follow-up to that because it has indeed appeared as the sort of top line in the report. And it is crazy, isn't it? Actually, that is depressing. I would suspect it was also, however, the funding of his journey, whatever it turned out, was actually, if anything speaks to his publisher, sort of books, who are a a small independent. And obviously, if somebody from, you know, HarperCollins, Penguin, Random House, whatever, those enormous conglomerates would not have problem finding an airfare for an international writer but a tiny publisher it represents a huge amount of investment for them and had he not won which you know they had no idea whether he's going to win or not they wouldn't necessarily have got a return on that money and to sort of demand that of them which is why it was completely appropriate that the book paid for that but yes I just thought it was an incredibly patronizing and impertinent question anyway let's say how wonderful it was for sort of books because it is great that really small wonderful. presses 
can profit Absolutely. from these awards. Yeah. And I think we can all, cynicism or not, I think we can all be behind that. How amazing that you, Toby Lishtig, fiction editor of the TNS, have secured an interview with the Book of Well, yes, you know, using my intrepid journalistic skills, I've managed to track him down and I hope you all enjoy listening to the interview. So I'm here now with Shehan Karanati-Laka. Um, hello, congratulations. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you very much for slotting me in. I know it's probably been a crazy 24 hours. It has been a long day and a, and a very short night because I didn't get too much sleep. But um, it's fine, it's fine. I'm still running on the adrenaline and the coffee. Good, mm. glad to hear it. Um, what does this mean for you and your writing, this prize? Well, look, it... The, the sh long list and the short list meant that my book would be... It was going to be released in the UK, but not necessarily reviewed or widely read, you know. The, these, this is the reality. And so the, the booker nod, the long list and the short list, meant that, yeah, one, it was being reviewed, it was reaching readers, and so that meant a lot, and it meant, yeah, the book gets a launch in the UK. But I have no idea what this means. This means that this is going to be read far more widely than I thought. Usually when you write a book in Sri Lanka, you hope that it might get published in India. and, uh, and Which, which is what happened, isn't it? Was that, Pen Penguin yes. India. Correct. Uh, but beyond that, you know, these are wildest dreams. You may get into England, but it's not the UK. It's not necessarily guaranteed. And the US is, is a pipe dream. But now, obviously, this book is... I think it's going to come out in Russia and in Germany and in uh, yeah a few other countries as well. So um, yeah, it's 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 been a phenomenal three months because I never would have anticipated this uh, in July when we were about to launch it. When was it? So it came out two years ago in India under a yes. different title, didn't it? Correct. Yeah. Um, and when was it picked up by Sort of Books? Because um, that's a small publisher that, that publishes you over here in the UK. So I I finished it in 2019 and. Uh, Indian publishers seem quite enthusiastic because uh, Chinaman, my first book, has has gathered a cult following over the years. So I think Indian publishers were eager to, for the follow-up. And um, But then we published it in January, I think, just in time for the Jaipur Lit Fest. Uh, and we didn't know the looming pandemic was going to put us indoors for the next two years. But in that time, um, yeah, it really struggled. It really struggled to get a UK publisher. Um, a lot of people who were fans of Chinaman found this difficult, weird, um, confusing, and um, and it didn't seem like these are things that could be fixed in edits. So, I, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, de dealing with other things, I was facing the real possibility that this may not be read outside the subcontinent. And then I called on my my old friends from sort of books. So, Natanya Jans is Sri Lankan. I mean grew up here, but she's uh, Sri Lankan, and I met her husband, uh, Mark Ellingham, in Colombo, many during the Chinaman years, and I've written for them, and, and they've always been uh, quite generous with their feedback, so I've sent short stories to them, and uh, even stuff there that they weren't publishing, and they've given me feedback, so in this time of need, I, I sent them the manuscript of Chats with the Dead, and I said, do you mind just looking over it and telling me if I have a chance publishing it in the UK, and I got such a generous response in terms of notes and pointers, just saying that we think it's a terrific book, but it needs significant work if it's going to appeal to a UK audience or audience outside Sri Lanka. So then, uh, and then me and my agent asked them if they'd like to take it on, and thankfully they said yes. It's obviously fantastic for you, and it's fantastic for sort of books. I mean, it's wonderful, to my mind, to see a small press get this kind of accolade, and... 
It, you know, it strikes me, everyone talks about it being a golden era of small presses. I think that's true. Um, you know, do you agree with that? And, and how important do you feel the small press is in the current, current literary climate? Well, look, I was grateful to have such a wonderful editor. And I think when, when you are one of a handful of books, and it's, it's the same with big agents versus small agents, big publishers versus small publishers, you know, it's the difference between being in a big machine and being a small cog in it, but as opposed to being one of a few authors or a few books that have been published that year. And I, I really benefited from that attention. I wonder if a larger publisher would have been as patient with this manuscript and had, would have spent so much time rewriting it. Let's talk about the book itself. So sure. The Seven Moons of Malai Almeida. Um, who is Mali Almeida? Mali Almeida. Well, I suppose that's what you find out throughout the book. But um, on the surface, yeah, he's a... He was a war photographer. That was his main job. But he was also a gambler. Uh, he was also a closeted gay man uh, in the late 1980s in Sri Lanka. And uh, despite being a Colombo middle-class guy, he uh, would go to these very dangerous places. Um, and it was me talking about the Colombo bubble. I, mean, I grew up in Colombo in the 80s, and we were sort of like that. The war was taking place somewhere else almost. We were isolated from it. But this character out of choice, would go to these very dangerous parts of the country, up north and, out, and to the east, and in the south when there was violence then, and would photograph acts of violence and, and, and dead bodies and so on. And um, he finds himself dead, uh, much to his... Um, maybe he's not so surprised to find himself dead, but he's, he's surprised and astonished to find that there's an afterlife, because he, having seen so much of Sri Lanka's wars and atrocities, he was convinced that the universe is just a big random casino and a dice roll and there's no one presiding over it. And then to wake up to find out that there's actually is an afterlife and there's some very complex rules to it. Um, that's really the confusion you find him in the first chapter. Um, so that's that's who he is. But you find out a bit more about why he is and, and, his, and his different relationships. But the two plot points here are he has seven days or seven moons before his spirit moves to the, walks into the light and moves to whatever the next realm is. And those seven days or seven moons, he has to, one, find out which of the factions that he was dealing with uh, was responsible for his murder. But also he has um, a cachet, a box of these photographs of unseen Sri Lankan atrocities that he wants the world to see. And so these, these, these are the two missions that he has to accomplish within these seven days. You've chosen to write in a second-person voice, which is a tricky thing to do, and you do it brilliantly. Um, Thank you. At what stage did you decide to adopt that voice? Was that from the, straight from the beginning? Uh, and did it present you with any particular challenges as a writer? Yeah, well, at the beginning... I mean, the story's been through many drafts, and so the first initial was... It was a ghost story set on a bus travelling around tsunami-ravaged Sri Lanka, and it was... And, you know... I had problems with that draft, and it never eventuated. So, never. Set, so the original draft was set much further in time. This is set yeah, in 1990, was, so this yeah, was set this was set in 2005, later. and right. it was a, a haunted bus story, if you like, um, and a bit of a slasher horror trope to it. There's 13 on the bus, and one by one they get knocked off. And could have been a good book, and maybe someone should write it. But I kind of stuck too many ideas, and there were too many ghosts on the bus. There was, uh, but. And so I, I put it aside and went and wrote some short stories, wrote, started writing kids' stories, because it's quite. it takes just as long to write 
a, a bad book as it does a decent book. That's the depressing thing. <laughs> uh, you know, you spend two years on a 300-page draft and you realize it's, it's full of problems. Um, so I put it aside, and when I came back to it, I realized that the, the interesting character was the ghost on the bus, one of the ghosts on the bus who was Mali Almeida. And then that's when I decided to, yeah, to, to look at his story. But one thing I found when I, when I was writing his story that he was telling the story to me in the second person. And I wondered why that was. Um, and I think look, the other problem, technical problem, when you're writing a ghost story where the ghost reveals themselves on page one, usually the ghost reveals itself much later, is that what does a disembodied voice look like? And what does, uh, how do you write that? And I, I took me a while, so it didn't happen immediately, but I, I figured that the thing that survives your death is perhaps the voice in your head. Maybe you can call that the soul or or whatever it is, but the voice in your head and the voice in my head is in the second person. It's uh, it's talking to me now. It, it, it seems to be like there's some, maybe it's me, another part of me, or it's my soul or my mind or my conscience or whatever, but it's, it's talking to me in the second person, telling me you should have done this, why did you do that? And so I just went with it. I didn't think too much. It's only later that I justified it to myself. But one thing when you're writing, and it's happened with the first book, the first book, uh, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, the idea of telling it from the point of view of a drunken uncle, that voice just took off. And um, same thing happened with the second person in Mali, Almeida. Before I knew it, I had 50 pages, which weren't too terrible. And so I kept going with it. Um, and yeah, I was aware that the second person can be quite irritating if not done properly, but in my mind, that's what I was thinking. This is the voice in his head, and, and it sort of gives you a distance, so it's not the first person would be Mali in the afterlife uh, discovering things for himself. This was more like it was an aspect of Mali's personality talking back to him. And, um, and it allows yeah. it to be playful, I think. I mean, it's an incredibly funny book, but I think there's a lot of scope for humour when that voice is done well. Uh, yeah, I, I found that as well. And yeah, so I kept it going and I saw, and I was worried that in some of the edits that they'd say, yeah, can you change this to the first person? I was ready to do that edit. But no one said, said so. And so, <laughs> yeah, kept it going. And uh, thank you. I, I'm glad it, it worked because it, it could, have, could have fallen flat. It, but It definitely worked. Yeah. It's really, it's really beautifully done. Um, now it's set in 1990 in uh, in the midst of the, of the civil war. What was it particularly about this year or this particular period of the war that that you wanted to focus on? Why 1990? Um, so I was looking when I started this book. The controversy that was raging. So this is like. Uh, 2010, 2011, around, this is the post-war, the immediate post-war period. The Sri Lankan war ended in 2009. And the controversy then was how the war ended and how many civilians died and whose fault it was. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have much truth or reconciliation. What we had was different factions claiming it was the other person's fault. And I, and that's when this idea of a ghost story where what if we left, let the silenced voices speak? Um, so that was the initial idea. Um, if we could get the victims of Sri Lanka's many wars to talk, what would they have to say? But I was wary about writing about the post-war period. I was wary about writing about the end of the war because it was controversial and a lot of those uh, figures were still in power. And um, and I also not comfortable writing contemporary stuff because you never know your take on it today. It may evolve uh, uh, as history evolves. And But 1989-90, the other obvious date would have been 1983. That was when the anti-Tamil pogroms that happened, and many tracked that as the start of the escalation of the conflict. 
But there have been many books written about 83. And again, I wasn't sure it was my place as a Sinhalese Buddhist male to, to write about um, this tragic event in, one, in, in the Tamil minority's lives. So, but 89, I just recall, because I lived through that period as a teenager, I just remember how uniquely how uniquely messed up it was that we had three wars happening at the same time. So we had the ethnic conflict between the Tamil separatists and the Sri Lankan or Sinhalese government. Um, and we had this Marxist uprising among working class Southern youth that was happening at the same time, very violent. Um, they would take on the state and the state would fight back and abduct a lot of uh, radical students and whose bodies were either disappeared or bodies would turn up. And then we also had an occupying force, the, the Indian peacekeeping force. And for a murder mystery, it's, it's always good to have multiple suspects. So this automatically, so that's, perhaps that's where the character of Mali Almeida, he had to be a character who was ease, able to take photographs for the LTT, the Tamil Tigers up north, as well as document the carnage down south and move with the Sri Lankan army and so on. The epigraph says, Father, forgive them, for I will never. Um, mm. Does Marley forgive them without wishing to give too much away? <laughs> I don't think he does. Well, it starts, that's a good way to start the book because, yeah, he has no forgiveness uh, for anyone. Um, but perhaps, yeah, we have the character arc and maybe he learns to... But I'm forgiving not just the people who killed him, but uh, all the other injustices in his life. So there is, a, there is a kind of narrative of acceptance, perhaps, would you say? Or, or, do, you, or do you actually feel that, you know, because you've written a very biting satire, it's very, very funny, it's very dark. Do you feel that actually acceptance is not a massive part of the kind of worldview of this novel? So that's, I think, the, the angel and the demon on his, on his shoulders, the two characters that influence him in the afterlife, again, based on uh, real-life victims of 89. Dr. Rani, uh, based on Dr. Rajini Thiranagama, who was a Tamil moderate who was assassinated up in Jaffna for speaking out against the LTT and their atrocities. Um, uh, there's her, and she advocates moving on. She says, there's nothing you can do about what's down there. You need to just make peace with things and move on. Forgiveness. Um, whereas there's Sena Patirana, who's based on a less famous figure, Daya Patirana, who was a... a perhaps one of the first campus, campus Marxists to be, to be killed um, in the mid-80s. His view is, no, you cannot, you cannot forget. You need to avenge because there is no justice down there, but in the spirit world, we can, we can use whatever means we have to right the wrongs down there. And this is the thing, and you're never quite sure which side Mali favors. At different points of the story, he's sympathetic to, to both of these voices. But the fundamental question uh, I think of the book is, uh, yeah, do we go back and address our past and look it in the eye and deal with it? Or do we bury it and forget about it? And this is something that has plagued Sri Lanka to this day. We are still, I don't think we're very good at being honest about our past mistakes. And I, like I said, our memories are very short. So now they are talking about the economic crisis. Uh, they haven't really addressed what happened with the Easter attacks mm. or with the end of the war or with 89 or with 83. We tend to conveniently decide that these are too painful and let's... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's just move on that nothing good can come from it. But I think that strategy hasn't really worked for Sri Lanka. And so that's, yeah. Anyway, that's the debate that's raging with Mali. Should he? Should he go back and address his past, and or should he make peace and move on? And I think that's the central conflict of the book. You, you said last night at the press conference that you'd, ra- you'd rather have a peaceful country and boring novels. Um, mm. It sounds to me, unfortunately, like you probably will have some exciting novels still to write, given. <laughs> so given I'm the paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing one of my heroes, Mohammed Hanif, uh, author of uh, the case of exploding mangoes and red birds, and yeah, he he once said this to me because I, I asked him. I said because Pakistan. Had a, and it's still having a, a great period of writing, but it had a period where Kamala Shamsi and Mohsin Hamid and they were, uh, Daniel Munirdin producing great work in that short space of time. And I think, I don't know if I asked him that or if this was asked of a panel that is Pakistan, because of the term on Pakistan, is it producing great fiction? And this was Hanif's answer. I'd rather have a peaceful country and boring books. And um, yeah, I appropriated that. But yeah, I, I, I think... In terms of conflict, if conflict is the source of uh, great writing, then Sri Lanka's 2022. There's plenty of novels and there's plenty of, uh, yeah, petrol queue novels, uh, Aragalia struggle novels, novels from the president's pool. I think, yeah, I, I won't be writing those, at least not for another 10 years, but I hope someone is. I'm sure they are. Um, another thing you said last night at the press conference was that you said that if you were to start this book again, and, you know, writing from the point of view and through the voice of a gay man, um, you might pause now in 2022. And I just wondered um, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that and what, what you feel has changed in the world um, of writing and publishing since you began this. Yeah, so the question of permission. And um, for me, with both books, it was important that I separate the character from myself because you're writing in the first person and then you're going to in- inject your opinion. So with the first book I was writing... I think I was in my early 30s when I was writing that, writing a man in his mid-60s who was very different generation as well as a bit more conservative uh, in his outlook. And that was a great exercise for me because I could get in, get in WG's head and, and write this. And I think a similar thing here because, I mean, Mali Almeida is perhaps closer to my age when I was writing it. Um, the character was closer to my age. But I felt this key point of difference that he was a closeted gay man. And of course, his, his attitude is much more nihilistic than mine. But that detail was important. It kept me, uh, it, it he- he gave me a way into the character's uh, way of thinking and, and outlook. And yeah, so I didn't, but I, 
obviously I knew uh, I had to be accurate and faithful and authentic. So I, I did research this thoroughly, um, uh, got this the, the text vetted by, by gay men, friends, acquaintances. And so I took the care to do that. It would give me pause now, I mean, I'm toying with the idea of writing with the central from the point of view of a female character, which is, yeah. Um, uh, but again, I would say I shouldn't have to ask permission, but I should do it responsibly and do it well. Let's talk briefly about Kurt Vonnegut, because you have cited him. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's obvious to anyone who's read Vonnegut reading your novel that, that there is a tremendous... Uh, I mean, maybe not likeness, but the kind of the the worldview and the humour and the darkness and and the plotting actually as well. You know, the, it's it's you know, plotters important to you as it was to Vonnegut. Mm. And I just wondered, did did you have? I'm sure you weren't kind of writing under the anxiety of influence with you know too many angels on your shoulders. But w did you have a kind of particular period of Vonnegut in mind when you were writing this, or was it more just that you love him and you've read him very widely and you know he's sort of his essence is somewhere swirling around your head along with everyone else. Yeah, so so I've thanked uh, Uncle Kurt and I've thanked uh, George Saunders and Douglas Adams. George and, Saunders, we should say as well, he was the, the last person to win the Booker Prize with a novel set in the afterlife. So With Talking Ghosts, yeah. <laughs> yeah with so Talking Ghosts. <laughs> those were the guys and Cormac McCarthy, who's not quite, not as many jokes in that one. But uh, So those are the books I was keeping next to me. But with Kurt Vonnegut, I think I leaned on him when I was writing Chinaman. So I was writing... Um, yeah, I wanted this curmudgeonly tone, which had humor, but also had had light and shade in it. And so I turned to, yeah, I turned to Kurt Vonnegut. I think I read his short stories and his his classic books, The Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, to try and adopt that tone. But that was just, I, I don't think I, Chinaman's a very different book from any of what I described. But with this, two books in particular, more of his later day, less celebrated books, but some of my favorites. One was Bluebeard and the other one was Galapagos. And um, I kept going to those two. Galapagos is again a disembodied ghost who's a million years old who's talking about the end of humanity. Um, and it's with everything. It's hilarious, but it's also deeply depressing. Um, and with Bluebeard, it was, I think, a biography of an abstract impressionist uh, or expressionist. And um, the, the, the pivotal moment is when he reveals his one realistic, photorealistic painting, and it was a bunch of Holocaust, a Nazi camp survivors being let out into this lush field, and I could see that picture. And these two things, I've really, I don't know if appropriated is the right word, but I, I, I've used them, the idea of these photographs that reveal uh, big truths. So that's, that, and, that's, uh, your, that's your box of photographs. That's Marley's yeah, box that's of photographs. Yeah, that's the box of photographs. Yeah, yeah. And, and this disembodied uh, ghost trying to make sense of, of the past. So, But also, you know, you have these books. So I had the Hitchhiker's five-part trilogy. I had Lincoln in the Bardo and the 10th of December right at hand. So when things aren't... And sometimes it's good to just, before your writing day, immerse in these books. And um, so I think, yeah. Was Directive Joseph works. Heller there as well, or, or not particularly? I mean, I know, I know some reviewers have picked up on that, and they're, you know, you, there's humour, there's war, but <laughs> there's absurdity. <laughs> so confession, I've started Catch-22 many times, but I have never finished it. Me and, too. Uh, <laughs> okay. Me too. Is it okay to admit <laughs> yeah, that? This, this is a safe space. It's fine. We can both admit that. Okay, I hope okay. our listeners feel the same. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I think it's our fault, not Joseph Heller. I'm from, sure. But, um, yeah, uh, I haven't given up on him. But, yeah, so, but I can see the similarities, but, yeah. Let me read the whole thing and 
and figure it out. Um, I'm going to let you go in a sec because I know you've had an incredibly busy day. I'm just going to finish by asking how on earth you're going to cope with the next year or so because obviously this is a tremendous achievement and you're going to be very busy, probably flying around the world, going to festivals. You might even try to carry on writing a bit if you're very lucky. You know, have you... <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> You don't so, have to answer that if you don't want to. Well, I don't know is the short answer. I mean, it's been 24 hours and I, yeah, I probably need to get some sleep and uh, think about what the next 12 months mean. Still to come on the show, Geoffrey Chaucer on trial as we look at the evidence that to many scholars of the period may mean that the so-called father of English poetry faced an accusation of rape an accusation that many have taken very seriously and others have tried very hard to ignore. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Michael Keynes. There's a persistent line of thinking that says writers are or ought to be virtuous types, despite all the evidence to the contrary that has accumulated somehow over time. Some people were disappointed, for example, to learn from a court document unearthed in 1873 that Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English poetry himself, might have committed rape. For over a century, that is, medievalists have been wondering if the Latin words de raptu meo, by which a woman called Cecily Champagne relinquished a claim against Chaucer, referred to abduction or rape. They have wondered if Chaucer was in fact guilty as charged, whatever the charge was. And while some male critics have taken an ugly defensive line, others have found it difficult to resist building a biographical mountain out of a rather uncertain molehill. Well, rather sensationally, new discoveries have now been made and unleashed on the world earlier this month. That's October 2022, if you're catching up with this episode a bit further down the line. We're joined by the writer and medievalist Mary C. Flannery, who can explain what's going on and why it matters. First, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. And can you, to begin, give us the headlines here? What's been discovered? Who's discovered it? Why does it matter? All right. So what's been discovered consists of two documents that were unearthed in the National Archives, thanks to the collaboration of two people. Professor Sebastian Sebetsky of the University of Toronto, and Ewan Roger, who is the principal medieval records specialist at the National Archives. And essentially what they have discovered are two documents that relate to the case between Champagne and Chaucer, and that's how it's been thought of until now. 
The first document actually dates from before the original quit claim that released Chaucer of the charges related to Deiratu Mayo. So this is a document dated to October the 11th, 1379, that shows that Champagne and Chaucer were actually co-defendants in a case that was brought as a charge under the statute of laborers by one Thomas Staunton. So this was already an incredible discovery because up till now, we have been thinking of these two people as having been on opposite sides of a case. Now it appears they were co-defendants and then the context was something completely different from sexual assault or abduction. This was a labor dispute. And Staunton was uh, claiming that Champagne had left his employment before the agreed end of that term of employment. And that Chaucer, who had taken her into his employment since then, had not relinquished her when asked to do so. So this was already just an absolute game changer of a document. And then they found a second document dated from a little bit later in which we see that Champagne had appointed two attorneys to help represent her in this case. So for me, the most exciting thing about this discovery was that it brought in a context that really wasn't even on the table. It hasn't been on the table for the last 150 years. And so that's what's got people in a tizzy at the moment. Of course, what remains to be seen is precisely what that phrase de raptumeo might mean in the context of such a dispute. What's going on here? That's really the question that remains. I mean, when I say, why does it matter? I mean, I suppose we're not looking here at a cut and dried case, which I think so many people would to make it one way or another. It's a case of taking another piece of evidence, listing the urge to say, oh, this is case proven. I mean, is this another way in which it matters? It's not just about saying guilty or innocent. It's about look at the convolutions of trying to understand history, of trying to understand this period, of trying to understand what happened in this one instance. That is absolutely right. And you know, you open by saying that people really want to think about writers as virtuous, but in Chaucer's case, they also really want to think of them as likable. That's the quality that they want to hang on to. And it's something that has been present in criticism and discussion of Chaucer for hundreds of years. You know, John Dryden writing of him said he felt when reading Chaucer that he'd sort of stumbled upon a soul that was congenial to his own. And it's that congeniality that's really stuck and it sticks even for Chaucerians to this day. And so that for me was the real eye-opener here. Yes, these documents say something about Chaucer and about Champagne. We're still not entirely sure precisely what that is, but what they also tell us is something about Chaucerians and people who read Chaucer, who like Chaucer. They tell us just how invested people are in that notion of Chaucer as a likable figure. You know, we want to be free to like him. Isn't that so interesting that it should have alighted on him particularly? I wonder if there's any reason that you think that that's the case. I wondered just hearing that whether it was because we have this idea of the conviviality that's built in to the Canterbury Tales, this person who's sort of gathering us all round and mm. saying, listen to these stories that do expound and elaborate on human frailty and desire and all the sort of virtues and, of course, the vices. Absolutely, Alex. And in fact, 
I think you've really put your finger on it there. That conviviality is something that emerges partly out of the whole conceit behind the Canterbury Tales, right? The notion that this is a tale-telling competition between lots of different sorts of people on the road to Canterbury, but it also emerges out of the way that Chaucer inserts his own avatar into these texts. You know, the fact that he presents himself as one of those pilgrims, as someone who's a little bit hesitant to speak up, as someone who's a little bit embarrassed about some of the rude tales that he's about to tell. It's in the Miller's prologue, for example, when he apologizes to readers and suggests that they might want to turn over the leaf and choose another tale if they don't want to hear about the harlotry or the bawdy ribaldry that is going to be really present in the Miller's and Reeves and Cook's tales. So it's something that Chaucer himself builds in to so many of his texts, but really the clearest example of that is, of course, the Canterbury Tales. That makes perfect sense, but in a way, I'm surprised that it extends to scholars and academics and really close students mm. of Chaucer beyond a sort of wider readership in the sense that that paints a portrait of Chaucer kind of manipulating his audience and his readership. <laughs> and we know, of course, that he, he is. I mean, you can see it in the text, is a master manipulator yeah. of tone and reaction. and He is a sort of trickster in that sense in a way but I'm surprised that somehow that's got under as it were the kind of defenses of people who've spent their lives studying him or am I being very naive about the ability of academics to kind of have that that sort of distance and objectivity it's an awful thing to ask an academic no 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 <laughs> it's something to which we all aspire we definitely aspire to that objectivity but I think it's particularly complicated in Chaucer's case for two reasons. The first is this notion that we have of him as the father of English poetry, right? That sort of mm. paternal figure in English literary history, which automatically builds in both a kind of reverence, but perhaps a kind of intimacy. You know, this is someone responsible for where we are today in terms of literature, in terms of poetry, English literature particularly. But I think it's also related to the way that we tend to, if you like, sell Chaucer. You know, one of the things that's become more and more common, especially um, since the 20th or across the 20th century and up to the present day, is the way that translators, adapters, even teachers of Chaucer tend to emphasize just how enjoyable he is. You know, we want people to be wanting to study him, to be wanting to read his work, to be constantly coming to see new dramatizations of his texts. And so the thing we tend to emphasize is not what a fantastic uh, versifier he is or how philosophical he is or anything like that. We tend to emphasize how entertaining he is. And I think that there's something about that that lingers on and sort of spills over into our own scholarship. You've reminded me that tutor Catherine Duncan Jones died and her mm. book about Shakespeare, Ungentle Shakespeare, was kind of ripping away the mask that had been built up that was very similar in a way, wasn't it? It's the mm. idea of the, the all-seeing, the wise author figure. It's inherently virtuous, as I think I was getting at. And in a way, the converse movement can be a necessary revolution, but maybe it can also be something that cuts against evidence. In this particular case, I was wondering how are the medievalists, how is the scholarly community? <laughs> how are they doing? Seeing? How are they doing? How are they taking <laughs> the news? I mean, it sounds like it was very orchestrated. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say that 
it's a bit of a, I won't say bin fire because that's really not respectful enough for it, but it's been explosive. This really was an incendiary. It was always an incendiary case. This was an explosive discovery. And people have also always taken or mostly taken very firm stances on this case. And so I think that there were always going to be strong responses to this. Uh, in a way, it was inevitable that we'd see headlines saying he was wrongly accused. And I think it was also inevitable that we would see resistance to the idea of letting go of that potential interpretation of Raptus so quickly. It's true that we still don't quite know what it means. We don't know how that kind of language relates to a case like this. One of the questions that people keep asking is, are there other cases out there where we see a reference to raptus in the context of a labor dispute? And so we don't know that yet. And I think that that uncertainty is also some of what leaves room for people who have been invested in this notion of you know, accountability, making Chaucer accountable for certainly the discourse of sexual assault we find in his work, as well as this potential charge from which he was released. I think there's a lot of resistance to just saying, well, it's it's done now, it's over, let's let it go. And so you're, you're absolutely right. We have sort of, we do have extremes. And then of course we have some people in the middle who are just trying to get everybody to calm down and, you know, let's just, let's take a moment, step back. <laughs> <laughs> step back from the thing that isn't a bin fire. Yes. <laughs> so in other words, this is a sort of, in this area of Chaucer studies, this is basically a sort of new chapter now. There's going to be a whole heap mm. of work and investigation and, thought that we'll try and clarify and I suppose one of the questions that people listening might be thinking I'm thinking is to what extent more generally does it matter evidently it's very important in Chaucer's scholarship but we come back so often don't we to this question of how do we separate the author the creator and the life I wonder what your thoughts about how it will resonate more generally Hmm. Well, I think it is a discovery that has forced scholars certainly to confront the issue of where they might be driving their own work because of their mm. own investment, because of their own interests. It has reminded us of the importance of objectivity. I mean, the fact that no, I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That for 150 years, we haven't had somebody saying, well, I wonder if it might've been something like a labor dispute. So I think that itself points to if not a kind of blindness, maybe perhaps a blinkered approach that scholars are now seeing, okay, we need to be mindful of how we approach these subjects. And then of course, there's the issue which has always been there because of this potential charge of raptus linked to Chaucer of thinking about, well, what do we do when we love a piece of writing or we love a work of art and that the artist responsible for it may not have been that great of a guy. So, this is a debate that you know could go on forever and ever. You can have a few more podcasts, I think, to cover that with someone else. <laughs> someone else. This is a good idea. Okay, a spin-off. Yes, yes. Carry on, spin-off episode. You're absolutely right. It feels like it's come up in so many different contexts with so many different artists and creators. And the thing that I often feel doesn't kind of get said is that as a consumer, and I'm not talking about people whose lives are dedicated to something, but just as a, as a consumer of the culture you in a sense you can't excise it from mm. your life it is there I suppose I'm actually thinking about somebody like Morrissey who now mm. has you know clearly views and opinions and attitudes that are abhorrent to lots of people including me but whether I decide never to buy another piece of 
work that he creates is one thing, but I actually can't go back and sort of expunge him from my brain and, and what his music meant to mm. me. But on the other hand, the other side of that is neither do you want to minimize the damage that somebody may have caused to another human being just because that human being isn't famous and didn't write the Canterbury Tales. It feels like something you can never quite resolve. It does, but I think it's for that very reason that we shouldn't let go of it. I think this is exactly why we need to keep talking about these artists and the art that they produce. And we need to always keep our eye on the need to put that in context. The context might be historical, you know, to what extent are they a product of their own time? The context might be the facts of their biography. You know, how do, how do we read these two things alongside one another? But I think the worst thing we could do would be to throw it all out the window. I think that that in a way, that would be the easy way out, right? That would be the way that we avoid confronting the complications of the situation. And so my hope certainly is that regardless of where the documents lead us in the end, we don't turn away from moments where we are forced to reckon with the possibility that the artists may not be as virtuous or as likable as we want them to be. That's also a great sea change, isn't it? And I think one that has general implications. It's not just Chaucer, obviously, but also that this new discovery or these discoveries really kind of expose the need in a way for more, that we have a hunger for more. I've got to ask you, Mary, as we run out of time, is there a particular Chaucerian find you would like to make yourself somewhere deep in the archives? What would really matter to you? What would change the game for you? Oh, wow. Well, this, to be honest, the thing I would love to stumble across would be something written in Chaucer's own hand. That is really silly and selfish and small, but, you know, it's remarkable (laughs) to think, you know, not only was he a writer, but he was also someone who worked at customs. He was responsible for keeping records in his own hand. It's got to be out there. And I think that if there's anything else that we can take away from this discovery, it's just how much remains to be discovered in something like the National Archives. These are really overlooked resources, and it's high time we started to look a little bit more deeply into them. Oh, that's a wonderful positive note, I think, not to take away from, from this really <laughs> Yes, let's be positive. Let's take that positive. It's out there. Go get it, medievalist. Get it. Um, well, all of this you've written about so brilliantly in this week's TLS. I've read the piece, you know, a few times now, and I love the clarity which you describe what is something quite complicated, you know, for general readers. So thank you so much for doing that, Mary, and thank you for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. time for this week our thanks go to toby lichtig and mary c flannery thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte party we'll be back next week but for now from michael keynes and from me goodbye 